I was the only woman in the class. And really? none of the men would hold up their hands and go, I don't know that word you're using right now. But mm. I didn't care. I was like, I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. So I asked, what is a residue? And afterwards, <laughs> half of them were like, thank you for asking. <laughs> From Quantum Magazine, this is the joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Sharon Glotzer. What gave you the strength to do it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if you were the only woman in the class, some people in your position would have thought, oh, geez, I'm the only woman in here. I better not look stupid in front of all the boys. Um, If someone said something to me that was, you know, sexist or biased or something like that, my first thought wasn't, I don't belong here. My first thought was, you're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Great. What a good, healthy attitude. (laughs) Well, I think I must have gotten that from my parents who just made me think I could do anything and I could be anything Mm. and that I shouldn't be afraid to go get it. Sharon Glosser is hard to classify. I guess you could call her a computational physicist because she uses computers to think about deep physics problems. But she's also a material scientist and her work has a lot of overlap with chemical engineering. In fact, all her work is driven by one quest, which is really the quest to understand complex systems made out of enormous numbers of simple parts. She wants to know how order emerges out of chaos in systems like this. And something I found really delightful and fascinating about talking to Sharon is that her journey to asking these questions was itself full of randomness and curiosity. I mean, how does someone become a scientist? What were you like as oh a my kid? God. Tell Sharon me about your is a family. Girl. Like yeah. my least favorite. No, okay. <laughs> well, why not? What did your parents think of you? Were you? A- oh my gosh. Well, my parents were always very supportive of anything. We were. I was actually born in New York City, um, mm-hmm. but we moved out to LA when I was five. My dad. He was working for a, a schmata. Schmata business. He was a schmata salesman. Meaning he sold fabrics, fabric <laughs> okay. swatches. Like he, you know, he sold fabrics to like the big houses and things. Um, so and, nice, schmata salesman. Yeah. So who needs who needs whatever the plural is of schmata, schmatas? The, everybody. Everyone needs so fabric. Need sh- everyone needs fabric. Yes, I just remember like living with boxes of fabrics everywhere all the time. Huh. That's interesting. That's that's what I that's what I remember. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, so we lived out there. And so I, I lived in that neighborhood where they filmed E.T., which was up on Brazilian Drive, which is a couple streets over from us, where the kids are riding bicycles and stuff. And they're and they're going down these like there's there's lots but prepared for houses and they're going down. And so we used to ride our bikes there like that too, ride dirt bikes off of those off of those lots. Yeah. And and, and what's really I remember. We would make like little tricorders out of foil and we'd make like little hats and stuff and pretend that we were astronauts on the moon. Oh. And we would go to these places and like search around and bring home rocks, moon rocks. I think so. I wanted to be an astronaut for a long time. So I have to so I have to I have to admit to something like second grade, third grade. I um, borrowed a microscope from school. And so we actually lived on a golf course and I would go down to the pond and we would get little samples yeah, so I yeah. could like look at a little paramecium under my microscope. Sure. I still have it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I never brought it back, and then I and then it became like too late to bring it back. Like it was too embarrassing to bring it back, and now the school doesn't even exist anymore. Okay. And I'm like, and I but I can't I can't bring myself to like get rid of it because nobody would want it anymore. They're much better uh, little microscopes that you can buy for your kids now. Right, so sure. I just decided I would just keep it because it was my first one. Okay, this is a very good rationalization. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then then my, my grandmother, who had lived with us, she moved out with us from New York City. And then she got cancer. She got sick. And I decided I would start learning about cancer and the body and stuff so I could hurry up and hmm. cure it. Do you picture yourself <laughs> so being how old at that point? 10? Or I was 10. Yeah, yeah, you're 10. 10. Okay. Nine, uh-huh. nine, nine 10. Nine or 10. Yeah. Uh-huh. So then I wanted to be, you know, a dog, like a, a physician researcher, whatever. Hmm. Um, and I remember my mom would get calls from the teacher at school saying, Sharon's not going out for recess today because she's reading a book on endocrinology. And I think you need to talk with her. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. And I was like, what is wrong with this? It's interesting to me that you mentioned earlier, you said physician researcher, as if, because that's not what people would normally say, right? The usual move is doctor, doctor, not, not doctor, researcher. I thought that if you want to help people and cure cancer, you need to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. But I, I knew that you had to use probably microscopes. Well, I think I changed my major like seven times. Oh. So I, I just, you know, I think I, I so I'm sure I started pre-med. Then I wanted to study microbiology because uh, I remember that was a new major at UCLA. And I thought, well, I have no idea what that is, but that's got to be cool. And then I took a, my first bio course, which is like 600 people at UCLA. And you're just memorizing all the phylum, you know, all the, all the, all the different species. And I just thought, this is good. This is going to kill me. This is so boring. I can't, <laughs> I can't memorize stuff. I'm not good at that. Yeah. And it was so, it was so boring. And then, so I was, then I was looking around, I thought, Oh, I'll switch to, uh, electrical engineering. I have no idea w- why I thought to do that. So I had to take my first physics course and that was like the first, uh, C I ever got in my life. Oh, sorry to hear it. Super pissed. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was like, yeah. I was, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is ridiculous. So then I said, okay, well, I have to do physics then. I wanted to do something that was hard. Good attitude. Yeah. (laughs) So I switched into physics, and then I took a course from Bob Cousins, Professor Cousins, on, um, like, uh, particle physics. Like, like, you know, the upper division intro to particle physics, where you learn about quarks and color. And I'm like, quarks? you got to be kidding me. This is so awesome. (laughs) So that's what what got me hooked on, on physics. It sounds like it really was good old-fashioned inspiring teachers and, and textbooks and yeah. things like that. It was. It was. I mean, I was already interested in all these things. I just didn't know, like, all the things that existed to be excited about. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that just opened up all these new worlds for me. It was, you know, like being a kid in a candy store, right? There's like, oh, my God, there's so much <laughs> stuff to know. This is, this is so neat. Then apparently there was some <laughs> formative experience with an oil pump. That maybe How you did you hear that? Well, okay, oh I did gosh, a little research. That's so funny. But it seems like that that changed your direction somewhat. When I went to UCLA, I'd lived my first year in the dorms. And then the, the next year, my mother made me go through sorority rush. <laughs> so, 
I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah. well, I know you. You're studying all the time. You're not going to make friends. You're not going to do blah, blah, blah. You're just going to work, work, work. Because she knew back then that I was a workaholic, which I am. And so she said, I just want you to just go through the experience. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. She's like, nope. <laughs> Nope, I'm not going to pay for your housing if you don't go. Like, oh, oh my boy, God. that's really serious fine, pressure. Fine. Okay. Well, yeah, fine. it so was. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I thought this is like so stupid. What am I going to have in common with these girls? I'm a scientist, goddammit. Anyway, whatever. Like Hillgard Road, there's all these sororities. And so you had to go up and down and you go to visit all these houses. And it was ridiculous. It was just like, I really just hated it. Until I got to uh, this this one house, Alpha Epsilon Phi. Um, and I felt like, oh my God, these are my people. And they were because it was like the Jewish sorority. I didn't even know that existed. But it existed <laughs> because because decades earlier, nobody let Jews into sororities. And so right. they made made their own. And then, and then I met all these women. that, And they're all like real. Like they study a lot. They're, you know, they have, all have big aspirations and stuff. And I thought, oh, this is so great. And so, yeah. So then I, I went through it. I couldn't even believe it that I... I like these women. So I joined the sorority. And so the reason I'm telling you this is because at some point, maybe my junior year or something, I, I, there, this, was the, this was my astronaut phase. And aerospace, like that's, that's the big thing in Southern California, right? All of these aerospace companies. And I decided that I wanted to work at TRW, which is now Northrop Grumman. I wanted to go like get a summer job at TRW where they made satellites and I couldn't I couldn't get past the HR like I couldn't get anywhere and I remember s- sitting at dinner one night in the sorority house and talking to my uh, sorority sisters about this and one of them said oh my dad works there I said he does where have you been hook me up girl <laughs> and she she said well I said what does he do she goes I don't know he's in management or something I don't know what he does but I'll find out yeah. Anyway, so she 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 finds me like whatever next day next week, and she said, "Oh, my dad wants to meet you." So I went and to, to visit him, and it turns out that he was the vice president of TRW, like the highest ranking person for TRW. Okay, and I'm like, "You have got to be kidding me!" I remember going home saying, "Are you insane? Do you know what your dad does?" She goes, "Not exactly." I'm like, "Oh my god!" So yeah, so so he later became the administrator of NASA. Oh, yes. that's funny. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I got a job. And, uh, and, and then TRW ended up um, uh, giving me a, a fellowship for graduate school. And they, they supported me through graduate school. It was, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, the first, the, so the, the, the man who, who, who hired me, his name was Cameron Knox. He put me in a group that was doing like plasma physics. And they put me in a room with a bunch of filing cabinets. You would go through, pick one out, and look for some signatures hmm. for some particular kind of plasma waves. And after one day of this, I went to find Dr. Knox, and I said, "This is not going to work. <laughs> this is yeah. not. This is not using my talents. <laughs> I don't know what they are, but I know they're not this." And then I got into 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 grad school. And I, I was going to go to Boston and, and they said, you should go to Boston University and work with Bill Scotchpole. So and then so I went to BU and then I, I joined his group and he hadn't, you know, his, he hadn't built his lab like he just got there. So the lab was empty. And my job for my first year of graduate school as a member of the Scotchpole group was to design 
a flange for uh, a sp- for a sputtering chamber to where you, to design like where do you put the holes for the electron guns so you could sputter yttrium, barium, and copper and make high TC superconductors. So anyway, so so we finally got the sputtering chamber put together, and I remember we were pumping it, you know, down to vacuum, and uh, at some point the this oil pump blew up all over me. But wait a second. What happens when an oil pump blows up on you? I never had that happen to me. I don't know. There was just boil all over me. It was just like covered in oil. I was covered in oil. And so I walk out of the lab, and, and this lab was in the basement, and the Boston University physics building is all open in the interior, so everything's around the perimeter. And so you could lean over the balcony off any floor and look straight down to the basement. And so I'm standing there like in the middle of the basement and, and so I could look up like through the skylights up, up above or up to the ceiling. And so Gene Stanley is walking up the stairs and he sees me and he says, you look like a theorist. Come up and talk to me later. <laughs> and so I did. I did go up and talk to him later. And by the end of the day, I had like decided that I was going to switch to his group. It was clear once I started t- learning from Gene Stanley that StatMech, like that was that was it for me. <laughs> that was what I that was what I was born to do. This oil pump moment was really big for Sharon for a couple of reasons. First, it's how she met Gene Stanley, a renowned physicist who uses physics to understand everything, from the stock market to sexually transmitted diseases to network theory. Um, second, though. The little physics joke that he told her about looking like a theorist instead of an experimental physicist destined to do very hands-on work, you know, like building an oil pump, this led Sharon into the type of computational science that she does now. And finally, this moment introduced her to the field of statistical mechanics, which has become her lifelong area, a branch of physics that deals with problems that, that otherwise seem completely intractable and can only be viewed statistically. Can you give us a flavor of what is meant by statistical mechanics and what appealed to mm-hmm. you about it? I thought it was amazing that that you could describe, like predict how a system would behave when that system is made up of lots of little things, like lots of little atoms or lots of little molecules or lots of little particles or, you know, even like, you know, objects like, you know, birds, if you go to non-equilibrium statistical, you know, flocks of birds, that you could you could, without having to know what every little thing is doing, but just by looking at kind of averages and just the statistics, that you could make predictions that were right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's, people do this all the time when you, like, take a, take a temperature of something, right? What are you taking a temperature of? Well, it's an average. You know, you stick a little thermometer in a glass of water or something, it's, it's, you're taking an average, and but you don't think of it like that. But it's well, not you're the saying same it's as, an average because it's an average of billions and zillions of, of molecules banging around. Exactly. And, yes. Uh-huh. And that you don't have to know what each one of those billions and zillions of of molecules are doing uh, to be able to make predictions about what temperature water will freeze at, or you know what 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 it will do under different conditions, that yeah. kind of thing. It's one of the most miraculous parts of physics, right? It is amazing that you can, it's almost like you're getting more out than you put in. How can you get such good answers (laughs) if you don't know what the little guys are doing? Yeah. 
Right. So, but when I was taking thermodynamics in as an undergrad, I don't remember uh, appreciating that it was beyond like substances, atoms and molecules. Like I thought, oh, that's really cool. But I'm not sure I understood that as long as the system is ergodic, meaning that at all of the different possibilities of the system could in principle be accessed by the system, then mm -hmm. statistical mechanics doesn't care what the objects are. Mm. Doesn't care, mm -hmm. right? Which is why so you can apply it, apply it to nanoparticles and, and, and you know, micron-sized particles in, in, uh, in, you know, suspended in solution and moving around, jiggling around like little pollen grains. You can apply yeah. it to that too. It doesn't care. It doesn't care what the objects are as long uh -huh. as a few... Um, a few requirements are met, and then you could say some very, very profound things. Well, I, I feel like I want to back up though, when because I think you've made a very deep point that um, unless someone has thought about statistical mechanics, might mm -hmm. be lost. So let's unpack it a little bit. This idea that that when you have something that's a, a collective, it's made up of what mm -hmm. we were calling billions and zillions of little entities. So traditionally mm -hmm. in physics, we did think of them as atoms or molecules, but then you mentioned they could be birds. You know, let's just talk about some other cases. We, the people nowadays do statistical physics of money. You know, they mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. the, the financial world using these ideas. Yep. They think about, um, you mentioned pollen grains, so they could be, or, you, or nanoparticles. We could talk about mm -hmm. traffic, the flow of cars Absolutely. on a highway. Is That's people right. use statistical physics on that. So you this, could talk about bacteria. Yeah, but so what gets right? me colonies is that, of bacteria. Well, there's this. There's I feel like a continuity in your life story that I I want to see if you agree with. That you mentioned biology. What was repulsive to you is that there were no principles that you <laughs> could discern. You had to memorize things. Whereas with statistical physics, mm -hmm. there's this unifying way of yes. looking at everything yes. that's made up of billions and zillions of things. And you would like that. That's you. That's your, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah. Isn't that part That's of interesting. The, the fun for you? Yes. Yeah. That absolutely. Is, you, you always had this in you. Yes. Finding the underlying rules that describe, like very simple rules that explain all of this complexity is, is definitely what, what drives me. It's definitely the way to characterize the science that I do. After the break, Floating tetrahedra, forbidden symmetries, and how order emerges from chaos. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quanta Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quantum Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantummagazine.org. Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. Well, so I feel like, the okay, so I don't really know your science too much. I just read a little bit, but it feels to me like if you were an artist, you would be a minimalist. It's true. There's some minimalism in one study in particular that I, if we could talk about for a few minutes, because okay. I think it's so, well, I find it very beautiful. What's this thing that you did with, with lots and lots of tetrahedra that I am so 
excited about it. Of course, you have to read my mind. But <laughs> I'll tell you, but but it'll it, it will sound less profound that yeah. I didn't have this deep inner question. It, it like like many discoveries in science, it was it was serendipitous. We were doing research on nanoparticle self-assembly, which is the idea that researchers in the lab can make all sorts of nanoparticles, which are of course made of atoms, but they might have thousands to millions of atoms in them. And they're little particles that can be anywhere from a nanometer across to a thousand nanometers across. And you can make them out of gold, out of silver. Uh, there are different uh, semiconductors, cadmium telluride, cad, cad selenide. There's, there's lots of different elements that you can mix and match together and grow little tiny crystals in solution and then stop them from growing at some point so you end up with a little nanoparticle. And those nanoparticles can have shapes because they're growing like little crystals. Shapes like tetrahedra or dodecahedra or cubes or octahedra, those are co more common ones. So can I picture them like little gems almost, like little jewels? Yeah. You know, faceted yeah, absolutely. shapes. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. That's right. You could think of them as Dungeons and Dragons dice. Oh, yeah? So yeah, what is, those so are little polyhedral dice. Oh, okay. Dungeons and Dragons. I see. So I'm used to cubicle dice, but in Dungeons and Dragons, the, the dice have these other shapes. Yes. Okay. All right. So go on. Right. So you're saying these crystals then form these shapes. So so we were we were working with tetrahedra because my colleague, the particular nanoparticles that he makes in his lab are little tetrahedra. And so we were collaborating with him and a bunch of other people on a big Air Force project and trying to make materials with a negative index of refraction that would bend light backwards, basically. Okay. And so, okay, we never got there. We never, we're, we didn't succeed at doing that. But as part of this, we were doing, my group was doing computer simulations of little nano tetrahedra particles and how they would self-assemble under various conditions. And so, which means that we would, you know, his, so his particles, depending on, you know, what they were made of and what he put into the solution or what kind of molecules he stuck onto the surface, these nanoparticles would self-assemble in different ways. They would, they would line up different ways. Sometimes they would put their faces together or they might want to put their vertices together or their edges together. And, you know, sometimes they would want to have just a few neighbors, sometimes would have more neighbors. And that would, and so if you do that locally and then keep growing, you would get different kinds of structures and we call those assemblies self-assemblies mm. mm -hmm. so it was our job as simulators to model this and try to figure out how we could tell him how to make his nanoparticles so, so they would self-assemble into a structure that could be useful for the project to do that as a simulator you know you have to say you have to come up with a model meaning you have to model all the possible forces that are in the system and there's a lot of kinds of forces in that system um, first of all, the nanoparticles, they're actually, they're actual little objects. They can't, they're like, they have excluded volume interactions, meaning they, they can't overlap each other. So like literally like take two dice and that you can't move them through each other. Yeah, right. So that's the, that's the simplest interaction. Uh -huh. But then the particles can have van der Waals interactions mediated by the water solvent that they're in. The particles are charged, so they can have electrostatic interactions, Coulomb interactions. Um, because they're not a perfectly isotropic shape, they have little dipole moments or even higher order uh, moments that, that interact in a complex way. And so there's, there's a lot of different 
forces that are going on in the system that we have to be able to account for so that we can make accurate predictions of what his particles will do under different conditions. All right. Now, let me just pause you here for one second, because I, I want to play with this analogy of you as the minimal artist, that if you were a photorealistic painter at this point, you would be worrying about all of those, the Van der Waals forces, the dipole interactions, the, the Coulomb charge interactions. And they're all there. They really are. Like they should be mm -hmm. captured in the picture the way a photorealistic artist would do. And that's one mm -hmm. way of doing science. And it's a perfectly respectable way. There are people that do yes. that. But, exactly. But it's but, so messy. But you are a different kind of artist. You are going to ask, okay, go ahead. It is messy. So that's exactly what. So we said there's all these forces and I have no idea which ones are more important than, than others. I don't know which one is contributing to this assembled structure versus that assembled structure, right? So there's like, we, we, the community know what say the functional form of the Coulomb electrostatic interaction might be between two particles mediated by water. And then the experimentalist can go in the lab and make certain measurements to tell me like how to parameterize the model, but it still doesn't tell me, um, you know, which forces are stronger than which and which are the ones that are responsible for making the tetrahedral line up this way instead of that way. And so at some point I told the student, okay, just turn them all off, turn off all the forces, <laughs> turn them all off. It's too complicated. And we'll turn each one on one at a time. Mm. And then we'll learn what is the role of each force independently of all the other forces. That's the beauty about being a computer simulator is that you can do these things that experimentalists can't do. We can I want turn to pause. off the forces. Yeah, that is a moment I want to savor. Because as you say, when you're doing this in a computer, as opposed to in the lab in reality, um, you can turn off forces. You can do these simplifications. And this, this tradition goes back to Galileo. Real, I mean, even earlier. But I'm thinking of Galileo with his inclined plane experiment, where he wanted mm -hmm. to figure out the way that things roll downhill under the action of gravity. And in real life, it's complicated because there's friction between the ball rolling in the groove. So Galileo says he tried to make the ball perfectly round and he made the groove perfectly straight. And, you know, I mean, he does all these idealizations, which is like you telling the student, turn off this force and turn off that force because we don't even know what happens just from the fact that the tetrahedra can't go through each other. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's the key thing for, I mean, let's see what that does just on its own was the question. Mm -hmm. And then later we could put the forces back in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's very elegant. And so it's, it's also like the simplest thing. To, at the time I thought this is the simplest thing to do. It like, is the simplest. Just, it seemed very obvious to just like, because we just start at the beginning <laughs> and then figure out what's going on. And so, and I, I describe this story when I give lectures on on this work because I think it's important for students to hear about how not everything is planned. Right. <laughs> and you could be, you can, you can think like, Oh, I'm so smart. I'm going to come up with this brilliant idea and test it and it'll work. But yeah. a lot of times it's just an accident. You just <laughs> see something and it's about knowing when to pay attention and when not to pay attention. Mm. And so the student, the student like came to me and showed me, you know, okay, I've, I ran it without the without any interact without any forces. And what I expect to happen if you turn off all the forces and then you're just like running the simulation. That means that you're just the particles are like 
like little pollen grains. They're, they're, they're undergoing Brownian motion. They're being bombarded by molecules in the water. And so they're just jiggling around with uh, thermal, you know, thermal vibration. So I was expecting, okay, so he's just going to randomize them. He's just jumbling them up, and then we'll start turning on the forces. So, uh, so we sat down. He showed me the simulation. He says, okay, let's turn on the forces. And, and, but he comes to me, and he says, okay, there's like a pattern I said, what do you mean there's a pattern? He goes, well, I don't know. Here, I thermalized them. And I looked at it. And there was, I couldn't tell what the pattern was. It wasn't like an ordered crystalline array. But there was something weird in there. And uh-huh. I said, okay, well, I thought you turned off all the forces. He said, I did. I, no, clearly you didn't. Well, I really did. I said, nope, do it again. So he did it again. <laughs> and it came back. And no, there was something. In, okay, there, there's something weird going on. Do a bigger box. Do a bigger system. Do more particles. Maybe there's something weird going on. So he did it again, and there was still this pattern inside, and we couldn't tell what it was. And, and, but I knew there was something there, and I didn't expect there to be anything there. Can you, can you just describe the experiment in the computer a little more? So you say there's a box, there's all these dice, that, you know, if we want to call them tetrahedral dice, I think that's a good image. So it's a big box full of dice, and they're being jiggled. Right. By temperature. Yeah, and you, and you imagine that, the, that there's no gravity, like it's as though you're in space with no gravity. Okay. And so they're just, they're just floating around, uh-huh. and they can like bump into each other and bump off, and they can turn around and point in any direction, and they could move up, down, left, right, and, uh, and they're, just, they're just moving based on sort of these collisions with each other. So they're just, even if, or even if they're not colliding, they're jiggling. They're jiggling yeah, yeah, like yeah. little pollen grains in water. And so... Right. And so they're all in there. And let's say you just have like two of them in a box, like then they're barely going to see each other. So you put more, you put more, you put more. And at some point you can get to a point where like half the box is filled with these dice and half the box is empty. And you imagine that. Right. Okay. So at some point, um, and so he was working at this, we call it density or packing fraction that was up around 50%. So, so when you're doing the simulation, you're, gra- you're randomly grabbing these particles and translating them, moving them side to side, or, or rotating them a teeny, teeny bit every, every single time step. And so you're doing bazillions of these little moves. So then we, we started looking at it. We couldn't figure out what was going on. The student went and calculated all the usual kinds of things, functions that you would calculate on something to see if it has structure to it somehow. And none of it showed anything. It just looked like a disordered jumble of things. But like you're the saying way that, that, mm-hmm. to your eye, it looked like when you looked at it visually, you thought there was something there, but the, you say yeah, the statistical measures weren't showing it. Right. The usual numbers That's weren't right. showing it. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. And so I couldn't figure out what to what to look at, and I couldn't. I wasn't able to get like guess what what it would be. Um, and so I asked the student to make all of them translucent, like see through, but colored, like different colors. And then we would rotate it around because I thought, well, if there's some kind of order, then at some point these dice should line up, and then we should see these bold black lines for their edges. And then maybe that would help us figure out what's going on. Great idea. And so then we found this, this image when we turned it around enough that where you could see these like wheels, circles, oh. with tetrahedra arranged in all of these circles and circles around circles around circles. Ooh. And it was like, it's still, I didn't know what it was, but it was clear. And it, so that image, by the way, uh, later became the BBC News Image of the Week. Ooh. The week of December... December 14th, 
2009. Yeah. Like I had no idea. And there it was. Wow. Uh, the talk. BBC image. <laughs> I know. Right. Like usually I, it's some like weird bird or something. I want to see know. this image. I mean, it's I'm visualizing. I don't know. Something that I'm picturing sort of like a stained glass window, except in 3D. Yes, that's what I call it. That's what really? I call it. The stained glass image. The stained glass image. Because you said you colored them this pr- pretty translucent. I'm guessing lots of nice pastel-y colors or something. Yeah, looks like stained glass. What are these wheels? What the heck are the wheels? Right. So I knew about quasi-crystals, which are crystals that have no repeat unit, right? So if you think of like an ice crystal, ice is, has the crystal structure of, hec- of uh, hexagonal ice where there's a, there's a repeat unit. Sodium chloride has a very simple crystal structure where you can take a couple of atoms and then you just repeat in you know all directions you know left and right up and down and you you can recreate the crystal from just knowledge of a little piece of the crystal it's a repeat unit like a tiling has mm-hmm. a repeat unit sure uh, quasi crystals don't have that but they but they do have what are called brag peaks they scatter they they scatter x-rays and they look like crystals from the way they scatter but they have what used to be called forbidden symmetries Quasi-crystals are mysterious. They were not something that people learned about in traditional solid-state physics. So many of us are not very familiar with them, and Sharon herself was not particularly familiar with them. When she happened to create one accidentally, if she had these tetrahedral dice in a box, in a computer simulation, and started jiggling them, they spontaneously ordered into a quasi-crystal. And she recognized that there was some kind of order there, wheels within wheels, but she didn't know what she was seeing. And it was only after she started to learn the terminology and the concepts of quasi-crystals that she realized she had accidentally, spontaneously created one in the computer. And here's another uh, serendipitous thing that, ha- that, that happens, uh, is that right at that time, I got an email from a senior uh, professor in Germany who wrote to me and said, uh, I have a very, very bright PhD student who would like to come and do a postdoc. And he's an expert in quasi-crystals, <laughs> which I was not. Huh? And yeah. so like, like just out of the blue, right? Just sometimes it's like the stars align and yes. weird stuff happens and like it's so berserk. So I thought, okay, this is a sign. <laughs> and so I said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and Dr. Michael Engel showed up on my doorstep at some point a short time later. Um, but even before he came, we started sending him this data and saying, you know, help us figure out what this is. And, and he did. And, he, and then, you know, we ended up working together for the next five years. Uh, publishing on all these kinds of uh, kinds of things. It's known. It has been known by I don't know seven people that that hard spherical particles will spontaneously order into a a simple crystal structure. Yeah. With no forces, just uh-huh. by doing what we did, but with spheres. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We know that that rods. If you take little rod-like particles and you do the same kind of simulations that we did, they would also order into what's called a pneumatic liquid crystal, where the rods all tend to point in the same direction. And this has been known since 1949. And in 1958, the very first computer simulation paper ever was published, and it was on 
hard spherical particles spontaneously transforming from a fluid to a crystal. I wanted to ask about an analogy and, and see if it's on track or not, which was that I saw something on Twitter a couple days ago that I thought might be close to what you just mentioned when you talked about rods and jiggling of rods. Th this was a, a Twitter video of someone showing a box of nails, like if you went to the hardware store and bought a box of nails. Uh, okay. I should have had that to describe as, as, a, it to as us? a demo. It was, it was great. So yeah, they had like a, just a little box, like the size of a shoe box. Um, and they had a bunch of long nails that maybe look like two and a half inch long uh, nails. And, uh, and they were all mixed up completely randomly jumbled. Um, and then they just were like shaking the box just back and forth very gently, very gently, back and forth, back, like the way you'd pan for gold. Because I know we all have that <laughs> exactly. experience of how to pan for gold. But you just shake it back and forth, back and forth. And slowly but surely, the rods all started lining up in one direction. A lot of people thought it was fake. People were saying, oh, oh, sure, it's fake. It's a hoax. It's the movie run backwards. It started lined up, and then they shook it, and it made it random. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're laughing because that's absurd to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, but, but I know I could see why you would think that. Uh, but no, I mean, because the, the shaking back and forth is a way of thermal, what we call thermalizing the system. It's giving them a little bit of, uh, of energy to like move around and explore. I mean, it's not the same thing as if you had rods and they were really floating in a liquid and they were really sampling all the different ways that they could arrange and line up. Uh, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's D kind different of because of the action of, of gravity in the case of the nails, but not in your simulation. Yeah. I don't think the gravity is so, so important. Um, but just, you know, to really be a statistical mechanical system, like a system that really, uh, follows the laws of statistical thermodynamics. But this is what this is trying to, appro to, to approximate. And so the nails line up because there are more ways of them arranging um, in the box if they line up than if they're all pointing every which way, which can, gets them like jammed up. Well, it's also true that if you took a, a box, a big box uh, of baseballs and you just threw the baseballs in, forget about the ridges of the baseballs, but you just throw the baseballs in a box and they're all in there randomly. And if you do the same thing, but probably you have to like shake it a little bit more, um, then they will all, they will all arrange into an ordered pattern. That's just like the pattern of, you know, the way grapefruits are stacked in a market. I mean, that's such a deep thing. This is, this is, uh, I'm glad we're getting to this, that you're talking about with the, the jiggling of baseballs or of the nails, or in your case, in the computer with the tetrahedra, that yes, what we think of as thing. a disordering, yeah, I mean, normally think of jiggling, you know, you shake something up to make it random, and you shake stuff up and make it mm -hmm. ordered. Yes. It's very counterintuitive. Now, it technically, um, the system is more disordered when it's ordered. Uh-huh. But by disordered, <laughs> we mean something different than um, positionally, spatially ordered, right? So we look at it, we see it going from something that's spatially disordered to spatially ordered, and we think, well, that's backwards. But actually, it's, the, um, it's doing that because there are more ways of arranging the rods or the tetrahedra or the, 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 the little ball, hard sphere, spheres, um, baseballs, if they are in an ordered arrangement. They're just, there are more ways of placing them mm -hmm. if they're ordered. So the word that you, the, the word that you used in one interview I read was options. 
Yeah, it's all about options. Uh, entropy is about, so, and so the, it's doing this because of entropy, which is counterintuitive because people think of entropy as meaning disordered. The best way to think about is that entropy is about options. It's the number of options, the number of ways you have of doing something. And if, and so if you, um, so if things are, if things are pointing every which way, then you, they can get stuck and you don't have very many ways of, of reordering them, of organizing them. But if they're ordered, then they can be, they, they can be, they can move a little bit one way or the other, but it still looks like a crystal still looks like a, a, an ordered thing. Entropy is one of the biggest concepts in all of physics. It's the idea that if you leave things alone, just leave them to their own devices, they will tend to get more random over time, more disorganized. Like if you just leave your room alone and you never clean it, it's gonna become a mess. You have to put in energy to make things organized. At least that's our intuition. That's what everybody tends to think. And you know, that's why what Sharon discovered is so mind-blowing so really surprising and counterintuitive. She found that this drive toward randomness can sometimes actually lead to spontaneous order, that order can sometimes emerge from chaos. And she has this unique, sophisticated way of looking at entropy that really entropy is all about options. Left to their own devices, things will explore their options as much as possible and sometimes will create spontaneous order. We've sort of taken for granted that you use computers, but you haven't told us how you got into that or, or oh, yeah. why do you like, like, what do computers offer you? Or I don't know. Computers allow you to set up experiments, computer experiments, right? So just like when we can study nanoparticles and turn off on and off forces, it's a way of doing the most controlled experiment possible because the computer will only do exactly what you tell it and nothing else, right? And so you have ultimate control over setting things up. Um, and I think that I, I, I like that, but I also just really loved writing code. And I didn't know that. I had no experience with computers really at all until I got to grad school. And then the summer after my first year when I joined Gene's group, um, we that so Boston University was one of the first places to have a center for computational science and the we were partners with a company called thinking machines I remember them which which yeah right and they came Danny Hillis's company they came out with this big parallel computer and 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 Boston University was what we called a beta test site so we got this big parallel computer with 65,536 chips cores in it and 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 so instead of like a regular like regular computers at the time had a single cpu central processing unit and you would program it and it would carry out all the instructions serially one after another after another after another um danny's hillis's idea was well what if we had you know thousands of them in parallel and each one of them took a piece of the problem and and did all the all the instructions in parallel and then brought all the, 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 the partial solutions together at the end, couldn't you do things so much faster? Um, and so that's called parallel computing. And that was like big that, that, that year. And so the very first computer I ever learned how to program <clears throat> had 65,536 processors. And we used to call it the connection it. machine, right? Yes, it is the connection machine CM2. In fact, I have a chip, I have a chip they gave me when I graduated. I we by then we were working on the connection machine CM5, and they gave me a little computer chip that had 
so so sometimes so if you wrote really good code and and sometimes you could find um, compiler errors or you could even find like chip errors. And so this was a chip that I found was bad <laughs> and they gave it to me and my mom made it into a necklace for oh, me. Oh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> I know. In fact, I wore it this, this so this last at the last American Physical Society meeting, I got an award for computational physics. It's like this big award for computational physics called the Rachman Award. And I wore it. <laughs> I wore that chip. <laughs> so that's I got into compu- to, into computer programming that that summer. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the, it was like the first time I found something where you don't look at your watch. <sighs> you know that thing where you're so engrossed oh, in something. That, they call it flow. You're so right? that's the feeling of flow. In the zone. You're in the zone or yeah, I call, flow. So yeah. a guy wrote a book about. I never this. heard. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi oh. wrote a book called Flow. And the feeling of flow is oh. when you're so engrossed in a, in a creative or whatever yes. that you that time loses yes. meaning. You're just flowing. Exactly. You're in the zone. Oh, I never heard. Oh, of you're going like I'm in the zone. You're, yeah, flow. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So that was the thing where I would, you know, you would start at like three in the afternoon. All of a sudden, it's like one o'clock in the morning, and you didn't even realize wow. that you, you know, you didn't eat dinner and you didn't know what time sure. it is because you're. I'm, I was so into it, and. It was something I was. I found that I was good at. I was really good at designing and writing code. I see. And uh, debugging was like one of the great joys of my life, <laughs> where you knew you had a bug, you knew you had a bug, yeah. you knew that you did it, you created it, and now you have to find it, like a total detective story. You know, after talking to Sharon, I felt like I had my own theory, a theory of Sharon. Her scientific journey has been driven by curiosity and chance and randomness and accidents. It's been all about meandering and exploring, wandering. And it sort of seems perfect, actually, because the scientist that she is today is someone who studies the power of chance and the power of systems to wander and explore their own possibilities. I, I think we all have something to learn from her openness about letting accidents work for you. Not everything has to be planned. Sometimes... Marvelous results can come from chance alone. So having discovered the quasi-crystalline order in, in the um, simulations, why do we care? Why is that interesting or important? What's the punchline of that? We care because we care about how order arises in the world uh-huh. and, and, and where complexity comes from. Um, how do, how do systems, how do, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, gems and minerals or ice in the freezer or all of the different complex organelles in the cells in your body, how do they start from nothing and then become something that's so complicated and so, so intricate? Where does, where are those instructions, right? How does something, how does something on its own figure out how to go from an amorphous blob into something with exquisite order to it? Ah. Exquisite. And yes. I want to understand. I want to understand those rules, those underlying rules, and 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 to understand how complicated are those rules, or are they really simple? And for me, the idea that you could have no forces, no complexity whatsoever, just the shape of a particle and some jiggling, and end up with things that are so complicated uh, to describe, is is extraordinary. And it, 
it, and it, it doesn't mean that that's how everything forms, of course, but it shows you that that's kind of the minimal model of, of, of emergence of order. Yep. Magnificent. We've heard in, in debate, or is it debate, or I don't know, in parliamentary procedure, they talk about Robert's rules of orders. I think we just heard Sharon's rules of order. <laughs> you know, really. Yeah, they're it's, not it's, nearly as strict as Robert's rules. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something very inspiring and, um, I mean, for me, almost like quasi-religious that, that from, such, <laughs> from such humble beginnings, banging around at random, that order, spectacular order can emerge. It's just a very... It's exciting what nature can do with so little. And you're discovering That's exactly how I see it. Yes. It's very exciting. Next time on The Joy of X, mathematician Federico Ardila and I discuss a couple of crossroads. His branch of math, combinatorics, where algebra meets geometry, and his brand of teaching, which he infuses with his own special rhythm. I, I play some more kind of improvised forms of music where you, you're supposed to just kind of set some initial conditions and then you just start improvising, like jazz or like a lot of, oh. a lot of kind of uh, music from the African diaspora. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.